Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Jen Selling. Her stellar softball play in British Columbia got the attention of the University of Oregon, where she played her first college season. After representing Team Canada at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Jen decided to transfer to the University of Washington, and the Huskies won their first national championship the following season. A decorated stint in the pros followed, and at the Tokyo Games last year, Jen capped her incredible career by helping Canada go one better than their fourth-place finish in Beijing, as the team captured the bronze medal. She is now an assistant coach with the Canadian national team. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting for the next little while with the two of you. Love it. So let's all hop in a time machine. And I want you to take us back to Port Coquitlam in, in beautiful British Columbia. Tell us, you uh, played a bunch of sports growing up that we'll get into, but yeah, tell us when you first fell in love with softball. We love those kind of origin questions, when you fell in love with the game and, you know, and then maybe when you, you know, came to a realization that this is the sport I want to really pursue and see how good I can get at the sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, to your point about Port Coquitlam, I grew up, I was born and raised, well, I was born in Burnaby, um, British Columbia, and then I was raised in Port Coquitlam. So I did all my elementary, middle, and high school in, in Poco. Um, I got started playing when I was five years old. Um, I, my father was a men's fast pitch catcher. So not that I remember this, but I was all of two weeks old being at the softball field, watching my dad play um, and just having a blast with his teammates. So I think literally from watching my dad, not feeling forced or pressured in any way, shape, or form by my parents, just me kind of taking my own path with it. I do think being at the field for as young as I was watching him play is definitely what sparked my love for the sport for sure. Yeah. And then you were kind of a show off and I'm joking, but a show off in high school. What an amazing athlete, not to, you know, uh, make you blush too much. But um, I love that you played volleyball and basketball. Tell us about that. And then you went to Terry Fox Secondary, which, you know, I I guess that's his hometown too. Um, And, you know, what an inspirational story. Um, Most people are familiar with Terry Fox and, you know, his mom and the cancer research and being an athlete and, you know, all the wonderful things he's done. But, yeah, tell us a little bit about – you know, what's neat for you is playing a variety of sports. So you were pretty busy as a student athlete. For sure. Yeah. I have an older brother. Um, his name's Scott. He's three years older than I. 
So I, I think having him was really helpful for me. We played sports outside all of the time. And for the lack of a better term, it's, I, I truly was a tomboy growing up. I loved playing with him and his buddies. I loved being outside, and I just loved playing sports. It didn't really matter what it was. I just loved being involved with him and his friends. Um, so I think, like, I was the hockey go- street hockey goalie with my brother and his buddies. Like, my brother would always, and I would always play shoot 21 hoops. Um, we'd be downstairs in our parents' house playing. We called it, like, hand hockey. So you're, like, it's like a, a plastic hockey ball, and you shoot it with your hand, and that's we just played games doing that stuff downstairs and we got you know we got pretty aggressive but like in a fun way like super competitive um played high level soccer like my parents put me in different sports growing up too so I just think a combination of being with my older brother a combination of my parents putting me in other sports um I think that's what kind of helped me pursue being like a multi-sport athlete um Specifically with soccer, I was a pretty high-level soccer player, so it got to a point where I had to kind of make a decision between, between soccer or softball. Um, but I also love basketball and volleyball, too. Like, playing those in high school, they were super competitive, and I loved my coaches who were, I was able to be around on those teams. So I think that also kept me in it, too, playing the multiple sports. Just the different relationships, the different coaches. Um, but coaches that I felt knew what they were doing and I could trust them. And I feel like I was actually learning something, not only as whether it be basketball player, volleyball player, soccer player, I was also learning like how to be a better person and um, you know, what it means to be a leader, um, a person of good character. So just those types of things, I think super blessed to be in the environments that I was in playing those different sports with the people that I was doing it with. What were some of those early teamwork and leadership principles that started to come through through your coaches and it sounds like through some good teammates as well? Yeah, I think for me, it was the work ethic piece. Um, It was the attention to detail. It was discipline. And I also think that came from my parents. Um, Super hardworking, um, very loyal and to get to that next level, I think you, you're president of what you're doing, but you're also very disciplined and you do what you're doing in that moment the right way. And then kind of the rest will take care of itself. So I think just kind of something intangible is where like the work ethic, commitment, discipline, loyalty, um, and just owning your preparation. Yeah, those are all things that uh, probably college and then pro coaches wish were taken care of at a younger age, but you know, some some are and some aren't necessarily. Do you think that um, part of your love of that team environment did stem from what you talked about earlier with your father and, and kind of that clubhouse atmosphere with those early teams? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the my most favorite memories, somebody was just asking this the other day too, what was one of my most favorite memories growing up playing are watching my dad and it was when his teammates and he would throw the ball sky high in the air as high as they possibly could throw it. And I would try to catch it. Um, but that's the stuff that I remember growing up. Right. And I think that's the stuff that has stuck, whether it's like feeling confident in what I was doing and knowing that I could catch those balls because they were very high, but also just the competitiveness around being able to catch the balls, you know, it's just like those different things. I think, 
you don't know it in the moment, but looking back, you know, it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. That I, man, you just brought back a really cool memory for me of doing that as well. That must have been, you know, a thing in the in the Northwest or just for all kids. You know, just throwing the ball as high as you can or having someone throw it and try to catch it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I forgot about that. That's you know, it's one of those you know kind of fun little games that um, just bring back good memories. Uh, did you say your dad was a catcher? Yes. Yeah, I, I always joke that catchers get to sit the whole game, so that's not fair. But uh, but catchers are great leaders in and of themselves, and, you know, they get to see the whole field. They get to see exactly. everything, and uh, they really take good care of the pitchers. And so, sure. uh, so I'm sure you learned a lot of good, you know, kind of communication and leadership and teamwork, stuff just watching your dad and just who he was as a person. For sure. His ability to, like, command defense and, like, his game instincts – um, it's that kind of stuff. It's really hard to teach. Um, so I think watching that, he just had it like innately. And I, I feel grateful that that's, I do feel like that's a part of my father that kind of was passed on to, to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, how about other members of your family? How did they kind of contribute along the way of this journey and um particularly when you kind of faced a decision point how were they able to advise you or just be there as a listening ear when you were trying to figure out like okay I've done so many of these things I still enjoy all of them but now I think is the time to really zero in on one for sure although I think my dad was the one who kind of kick-started my love for the sport of softball at the end of the day my mom truly was kind of the disciplinarian um, she was, she was the hard one. Um, she was, she, she was the disciplinarian. Whereas my father, he kind of, he has a tendency to kind of always take like my brother and I's side, if you will. Whereas my mom, she's, she's tough, but it's, I'm grateful for it because I feel like it kind of, sh- her parenting style, I think really significantly helped me at this point throughout my journey and, you know, now at this point in my life. Um, so I think just with the balance of the different personalities, right. And my dad did play for quite a long time. So my mom, she had to do a lot. Like she had to do a lot with my brother and I, she was just so present and she still is very, very present in our lives. Um, and my brother, again, just having an older brother is it's helpful from a competitive standpoint, you know, like he, we have very high expectations and high standards for each other. Um, and it's just kind of our dynamic and how we've always been and how I think we always kind of will be now, especially like in this next chapter of our lives. So everyone has served a purpose to one another in different ways within our family dynamics, which I feel really grateful for. And then, you know, even my grandparents are like super involved. Like, so now there's like extended family too. So it's definitely wholeheartedly team effort you know, when you're trying to win and you're trying to be successful, whether it's family or team, it's there's always so many similarities that go on between those cultures. Yeah, definitely. And what were some of the factors that it eventually made you say, okay, I'm going to either set these other things aside or minimize them and uh, and, and choose this path of, of taking softball to the next level? I think that I authentically did end up choosing softball because I, I started f- almost falling out of love with soccer. So it kind of just naturally phased out, just my love for playing the game. I wasn't enjoying soccer as much. 
But then honestly, what was game changing for me was when the University of Oregon head coach, Kathy Aronson, walked up to my parents at the Canada Cup and she gave my father, you know, her business card. And as Canadians, it was a really foreign experience for us because we're not exposure. We're, we're pretty, we're pretty green in like, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a different world for us. So when something like that happens, it's like, dang, like, what does this mean? Cause I didn't even know you could go play NCAA college level softball. I had no clue. So my parents were like, what does this mean? Kathy Aronson's business card, university of Oregon head softball coach. Um, so I think once she did that, I just kind of just, I kind of took softball and just kind of ran with it. It was really no brainer. And it was really late. That was actually when I was a junior in high school. Wow. Yeah, things have changed in just a few years. But, man, you really hit the ground running at U of O. And then then you transferred to University of Washington and playing. Did you start out playing uh, shortstop at U of O then? Yep. Yeah, what a what a fun position that is. <laughs> I love watching. Yeah, I was fortunate when I worked with the San Francisco Giants, Brandon Crawford, just watching him every day. I mean, good Lord, uh, what a what a great position. Um, and then you were tearing the cover off the ball as well, um, you know, when you went up to bat. Um, you made the transition look easy, but, but you know, from high school to, to college. And, and what I would see when I worked at ASU is that a lot of student athletes really hit a, a wall that first year, you know, in terms of, man, am I as good as I thought I was? Uh, can I really balance, you know, demanding athletics and then, you know, tougher academics? But tell us what that transition was like for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what the best thing that could have ever happened to me, which Coach Aronson um, communicated to my family and I, she proposed the thought of me redshirting. So I redshirted my very first year out of high school. So I just, I watched, I learned and I observed. Um, I did travel. So that was fun too. And I feel grateful for that because typically one redshirting is really uncommon in the sport of softball Two, to also get to travel while you're redshirting is also very uncommon. So I just felt super grateful that she proposed that idea um, so we chose to do it. Um, so I just watched and observed and did my thing my freshman year. And then the senior shortstop, she was a senior and she ended up leaving because she was her, el- her eligibility was up. So then I, I officially started my freshman year after, after that. So I think having that year to learn, watch, observe, ask as many questions as I possibly can and kind of get a lay of the land of what it is really like to be a collegiate athlete, number one, and a collegiate athlete of that at that level um, mm. was super helpful to be able to just have an experience just to just sit back and watch and learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, that's what I love so much about softball and that's what people love so much about softball and baseball is there's so much to observe. There's so much going on uh, those, you know, kind of the game within the game. And um, right around the time you were in high school, leaving for college, I worked with the uh, Greek Olympic softball team and oh, cool. uh Linda Wells was the head yeah. coach and, you know, and yeah. then Diane Ninemeyer, uh, right. UC Berkeley. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised neither of them got their hands on you <laughs> for, yeah. for ASU or, or for Cal Berkeley. Did they, was that part of the recruiting process or did you have your set site, your site set on uh, U of O? Yeah, that's actually part of my story too. I, I went to one school and that's the school that I chose. Um, that's cool. Yeah. So definitely one of the, things that I love to just share 
within my story, but also helping educate the youth and the girls that are looking to get to that next level after high school is to, you know, weigh out your options, you know, and write down a list of pros and cons and all the stuff that you value. And mm-hmm. um, Oregon, so grateful for my time there. It served its purpose in my life. Like I, I, there's so much looking back now that I took from that experience. I just think I realized after Beijing that it maybe wasn't the best place for me at that time. So I ended up transferring. Um, but it definitely was an unreal experience. You know, it's, it's part of my story. It's part of my journey. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, you don't fall in love too fast because you never know what else is up there. So just kind of weigh out your options. <laughs> That's um, interesting. You just drop the Beijing Olympics in casually there in the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of intersected with where, where your head was at, as, as you said, with this kind of college transition? Yeah, yeah. So crazy. I was only 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had only been on the national team for two years at that point. Um, so, you know, I, just coming back from Beijing, it was that was a really just such a whirlwind of an experience, right? Not only just the Olympics, but like a national team career had just started. Like my, I really felt like my career with the sport of softball was like taking off. So there was a whole, just lots of stuff happening, I felt. Um, And then coming back from Beijing, I think with Eugene being such a small town, I don't know if that time in my life I was ready to come back to that after being on such a high at the Olympic Games. Um, Because really all I wanted to be was close to my family. So I was, I was in a mental rut for sure. Like I tried to go see a sports psychologist for about a month, month and a half to just try to, the coaches did everything that I could to try to like keep me there and for me to be happy, you know, all that they could within their control. Um, but for, I just couldn't shake it. I just couldn't shake it. And I wanted to be closer to my family. So Seattle was about two and a half hours away. Um, and I, it was the best decision I could have ever made for sure. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that Beijing whirlwind. Like, put us in the picture of you get over there, maybe not knowing what to expect, and suddenly it's, you know, people from all nations and all different sports, mm-hmm. and there's obviously a different, completely different cultural experience. What What are some of the things that you remember most fondly now, looking back on that? I mean, without question, even 2008 and 2020, my most favorite part of the Olympic Games is the Athlete Village. That it is stunning. It's so um, like inclusive and so together feeling. Like everyone is there for the right reasons, and everyone is the master of their craft from all walks of life, doing different things, different specialties. So I think bringing the world together in that way is so cool, and you feel that when you're in the village. Like there's flags. A really common thing that you see is like on your tower, on your apartment tower, you have. People, like, drape their flag, right? And then there's typically a whole road of, like, everybody's country, their flag, like, line up on flagpoles as you walk down this road. Like, so when you see that, it's just, like, holy crap. Like, this is just beautiful. Like, it's amazing. So the village itself is, it's its own little community, right? And then you get outside the village, and there's just these world-class venues that are incredible. Like, they called it the bird's nest, and they just had it, they for the Beijing Winter Games just this past couple months ago 
they use the bird's nest again for their opening and closing ceremonies. So when I was watching that, I was like, dang, I was like there like 13 years ago. It's kind of crazy to think about that. But you see these venues and they're just incredible. Like mm. it's, it's unreal what goes into an event like that. And to be able to be around so many different cultures, all walks of life, who are there to represent their country and bring something home to their country for their people. It's like, there's no better feeling than that. Well, you guys represented your country so well, both times. And I love the picture of you on your uh, Twitter page <laughs> where you you have the best smile in the world and you're holding up the Canadian flag. Tell was that at the games where, or, or tell us about that picture. I love that picture. Yeah, no, thanks for noticing. It's, um, it's actually part of some content that we were shooting at an event. Um, so it's actually in the studio. Wow. The, the pic, you just look so happy and, you know, and, and proud to hold up the flag. It's just a great yeah. picture. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was a part of content that they were, they were, um, they were showing in between commercials at the Olympic games. Mm -hmm. So Got it. That's Phil cool. and I are huge track and field fans. Did you get, uh, I know you were busy at the games, but did you get a chance to watch any, uh, track and field and, uh, or, or maybe a little, well, you know, it would have been nice if you were able to, you know, have softball during the winter games so you could go see the hockey, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but yeah, tell us about, you know, uh, that was fun. I worked with a few Olympians, uh, in Beijing for the winter games and they had fun, you know, when they were done with their participating in their sport to go watch others play their sport. And they just said how cool that was. Yeah, no, for sure. This, this last Olympics, we weren't able to, we were very much like in and out because of COVID. We did get to Japan three weeks prior to going to the village. So, but even then we were quite quarantined. So going to see other events this time was an option, but we did go in 2008. Um, so that was really fun. And then just also, also just different multi-sport events, right? Not just like the Olympic Games, just whether it's the Pan Am Games. Um, you get to go watch other teams in other mm. countries play each other um, for different specialties. So it's just cool to be able to like represent and support your people at such, at, you know, on such a stage like that. Yeah. Are you old? Yep. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Jim. You're fine. Oh, I was just thinking about Vancouver. Are you old enough to remember that, Jen? Um, the Winter Games there, that that was pretty special. Um, what year was that? Uh, I'll need to ask my research assistant while Phil asks the next question. <laughs> yeah, I was curious, Jim, as you mentioned, kind of coming off this really successful um, first season with, with Oregon and then kind of, as you mentioned, being one of the younger guns on the team, what did you take from some of the older pros on that team who have been around maybe for, you know, three or four Olympic cycles? And what was that dynamic like in terms of you and the other younger players? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question. I think the biggest thing that I took from the 2008 experience on into this 2020 experience being 13 years later what it takes to prepare and train like a professional. And to me, it does take a lot of sacrifices and it takes a lot of support for you to be able to train and prepare as freely as you possibly can. And by freely, I mean mentally without any other added stress. Um, for example, in 2008, 
the gals, the veterans, moved to Las Vegas, where our team was centralizing, to train. And for me, I couldn't do that because I was in, I was at Oregon at the time, but seeing them do that was something that I was able to then take into this next cycle and kind of follow in their footsteps about what that looks like. And then, you know, showing that to, you know, the younger ones in our, our current team. So the winter Olympics were in 2010 in mm-hmm. Vancouver. Uh, but one of my favorite stories from that is I worked with a few Olympians and, um, they told a great story about Wayne Hallowell. I don't know if that name rings a bell, a sports psychologist in Canada that worked with the, a lot of the teams. And um, basically the, uh, the, you know, kind of the motto of the, the Canadian national team was own the podium. Mm. And a lot of, you know, players start, you know, and athletes start getting stressed out about the results because it was in Vancouver. Mm. And Wayne Hallowell said, hey, don't worry about the podium, own the moment. And um, I just love that story because it relaxed the athletes and they're like, we just need to be in the moment, enjoy the moment. And then we like our chances, you know, to do really well in terms of the results. And uh, I, I love that story. Uh, any advice that you would give uh, without giving away the whole farm, because, you know, you're still representing um, team Canada, but uh, any advice that you would give to uh, Olympic athletes, maybe for their first games? Oh, yeah. And I love what you talked about what, you know, in terms of Phil's question too, is just, you know, preparing professionally, like, you know, be, be a pro guy or a pro gal in terms of the preparation. And, you know, that's half the battle right there. But yeah, I'm just curious, because uh, you talked about uh, Olympic Village and, you know, I love the analogy of, you know, being like a kid in the candy store where you want to enjoy it, but you don't want to eat too much candy, you know, so to speak, so that you get a stomach ache, you know, you want to enjoy it, but you're there kind of, it, you know, in a lot of ways it is a business trip. No, uh, 1,000%. And on that stage, things can get extremely overwhelming. And to your point, there's not just the surroundings and the environment, but it's the pressures of what if I don't bring home a medal? What if, like, just disappointment, right? So I think you honestly hit the nail on the head, Dr. Jim. It was just like, you, if we don't take care of the present moment and we aren't truly where our feet are in the moment, then the outcome is going to pass us by. Um, so I think the more that we can be as mindful and as present as possible with what we're doing in that specific moment, the outcome is going to be what it's supposed to be. Um, but too often, especially as high performers, we're, we worry about what the outcome is going to be before we take care of the moment. And if you take care of the moment, like I said, the outcome might not be what you ultimately want it to be, but if we can control what we can control, that's all that we can do. Mm. So just controlling the controllables, you know, and I I think for, for me, the biggest thing that I learned was what we can control is how well we prepare and how well we train. Um, for that moment. Um, so it's doing whatever you possibly can to take care of the moment. So when the moment, the big moment comes, we're not overwhelmed. That's so good. So you, you get back from this whirlwind experience, as you called it, in Beijing, and then you've got kind of a, a big decision to make. So tell us a little bit more about that kind of transfer experience and then what came next. 
Yeah, it was it was interesting. I um I did not get a release from the University of Oregon, so at that time I had to go to a junior college to earn an AA degree, and that degree would then transfer into the next institution. Um, so between redshirting for the Olympic Games and getting an AA degree, that was kind of my process, the transferring process, because I did not get a release. Thankfully, the redshirt year did fall at a perfect time. Um, so that was taken care of because of the Olympics. And then um, I actually had to, like I said, earn an AA degree. So I needed 26 credits. Um, so as soon as the Olympics were done, I voiced, you know, I said to the coaches at Oregon, I, you know, I'm interested in leaving and they weren't going to release me. So then I moved to Seattle in the fall, sorry, the winter, January of 2009, I moved to Seattle. And then for two of those quarters, the winter quarter and the spring quarter, no, sorry, it was the fall and the winter, I think, because I transferred in in 2009. So reverse back three months. September, I moved to Seattle, enrolled in North Seattle Community College, North Seattle Community College from the fall and the winter, and then I was officially admitted into University of Washington in April of 2009. Got it. And, and that's, I mean, <laughs> that is not a normal transfer experience <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> no, we're not going to release you. And if you want to go yeah. somewhere else, now you have to go down this path. What did that bit of sacrifice and adversity teach you? Why well, I, I can tell you that my body took some serious amount of sacrifice um, because I wasn't training. Like, I wasn't training for softball at all. I wasn't able to practice with the team. I wasn't able to work out with the team. Honestly, my mission in my brain was, okay, Jen, you got to earn this AA degree so you can transfer and get into the school that, of, that you want to be at, which was Washington. So I was just all into school. Just get these 26 credits, do whatever I possibly can to get these credits and make sure I pass everything and do all the things that I need to do. So... I was living in an apartment complex in Lake City, just north of UW's campus. And they had like a workout room downstairs in my apartment complex. So I would do just like normal everyday stuff that people will do, certainly not training um, like a high-performing athlete. Um, so my body took a hit, I'll say that for sure. Because I got to UW in April and I felt like I was running down the first baseline. I'm like, Jen, you can barely pick up your legs right now. we got to gain some muscle mass. <laughs> So, but it ended up working itself out. There's different way to, ways to help your team offensively, I guess. I was like 0 for 12 when I first got there. Really? Star was probably like, what did we just get ourselves into? <laughs> you went 0 for, 0 for 12. Yeah, yeah. What, not what for was long, your though. mindset? What's that? Not, the, uh, not that slump wasn't for long, though, to be fair not to yourself. Not too long, yeah. <laughs> I think Willie May started his career one for 25 in the big league. So yeah, um, making me feel better. Yeah. But um, <laughs> softball can be a humbling game. Can it, you know, uh, I mean, we talked about off air a little bit that the pack 12 back in the day when you played was uh, just lights out. I mean, there wasn't a chance to really breathe, you know, from one game to the next. Um, tell us a little bit about your mindset um, at bat. Um, some, some softball players that I've worked with, you know, they're all in full systems go, you know, like, um, you know, I'm going to track it and whack it, you know, and then other ones are more like uh, one girl on the national team for, or on the uh, yeah, national winning team for ASU told me, you know, she said, 
I just like to go up there and be an airhead to see ball, hit ball. And, yeah. you know, and, and she liked the kind of the theme song from the Simpsons. So, you know, it's just more like happy go lucky. And it, so when she was feeling good, she hit good. And she said that, you know, and I said, well, when you're not hitting well, what, 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 you know, what's the soundtrack? And she said, it's law and it's law and order, you know, <laughs> you know, like it's too serious. And so, yeah. uh, but others, it's like, no, I gotta be like, I'm going to cut these girls up today. Like that, that's yeah. my mindset. So what were you one or the other or somewhere in the middle or. Well, it depends on when you're asking. Ooh. Um, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk uh, at UW. Yeah. I, um, I'm a very analytical, attention to detail person, and I have a tendency to be a perfectionist, specifically with the fundamentals of the game. So I will say, honestly, then and now, I've been able to do it better this latter part of my life, but still definitely something I 1,000% have had to be aware of is I had a tendency to think a lot about mechanics in the box and take things too seriously. So I was um, pretty, I wasn't very good at celebrating when I had success. I always wanted, you know, even if it was a double, I'd probably always be thinking about like, where, where is my barrel head at? Where is my body angle at? Like the, those kinds of things. Um, so I was definitely a very serious person. Like, I didn't care what my at-bat songs. I, in fact, I had them choose it for me. I was just like, whatever, do your thing. Like, I would rather, much rather be in silence, hear no music, and lock into where's my body at, how's my body feeling, and then obviously, you know, the offensive approach versus, like, hearing mu music. I'm, like, the opposite of loose, which probably something that, like, I would need to be better at and if I continued to be playing. Yeah. Well, I think that that's what made you a champion. Um, you know, no one gets great by thinking like, oh, that was good enough or, <laughs> you know, thinking more about their, you know, walk up song or whatever than, mm -hmm. you know, than the actual at bat. But, um, but you're right. It does pay, you know, you pay a little price being maybe sometimes a little too serious or not giving yourself credit where credit is due. So that's, I think that's a important message for everyone is, you know, be serious and uptight and kind of nerdy when it's time to be, you know, especially at practice to get better. But then, you know, there needs to be a little bit of, you know, fun and joy and just really freeing it up and rocking out. And, you know, I think that, you know, the best players, they don't, uh, you know, like when you were hitting your best, you probably weren't thinking, you know, watch ball, think mechanics, then hit ball. It was watch ball, hit ball. And so um, simplifying is something, um, you know, that helps at the higher levels. But I, I love too, that you said, you know, trying to be perfectionistic. And then you said with the fundamentals, I love that, you know, being brilliant with the basics is, is such a key point because I think too often we get impatient and want to, you know, do all the bells and whistles and all that instead of just being brilliant with the basics. So that's a great message. I think for everyone is, um, is really rocking the fundamentals. And I think too, like my, like, as I reflect and now kind of moving into this next chapter of my life as a coach, right? There's a time and place to be thinking about fundamentals and there's a time and place to where you, you're competing, right? And for me, I, I clouded my brain a lot in game because I wanted, I was, I'm a perfectionist, right? So I was thinking about where's your body at on stride, where are your hands at, all the things that you, we don't want to be thinking about in the batter's box. Um, so just knowing when, to be thinking about th those things and time and place of those things. Because in game, if we're thinking about mechanics, we're already losing. 
Exactly. You're multitasking. Exactly. So um, when you're in the cage, when you're training and you're practicing, that's when you're thinking about the fundamentals. So just know it's train brain, complete brain, and just knowing when to turn those on and off. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so you mentioned this, you know, initial slump and you're feeling sluggish and you're almost probably trying to run yourself into shape on the bases a little bit, but that season ends up kind of being quite the opposite of a slump uh, for the team. Can you take us inside a little bit, uh, the run that you went on that year? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that was, I mean, it's like one of the coolest things you could experience in college athletics. Like that's everyone's dream it's to win a national championship, right? And First and foremost, I feel extremely grateful for how the girls welcomed me in and how Coach Tar communicated what the plan was with this random Canadian coming in in the middle of the season. <laughs> so the transition in that way was truly seamless. Um, and once I got there, you could just feel the vibe that the expectation, the expectation at, at that level at Washington is always to win a national championship. But when you win it, you kind of look back and you're like, dang, we weren't supposed to not win. Just with the vibe and the feel of the locker room, the presence, the the accountability, the standards, the expectations, how people were behaving, how people were treating each other on and off the field. Just It was just a feeling that you felt like was going to happen. And then when we won the game against UMass in 2009 at the regionals, that took 15 innings. When we won that game and then Amanda Fleischman made that catch over the right field fence where we, if she didn't catch that, we lose. Then I was just like, we're all just like, this is, we obviously have to still keep taking care of the moment, but there's signs and things that were happening that just felt like we were supposed to win a national championship that year. Yeah, dial in a little bit on Coach Tar because now, you know, the winningest coach, I think, in any sport <laughs> at the yeah. school, you know, just piling up wins and wins and wins and these crazy high win percentages year after year. But I'm guessing that outside of outcomes, as we talked about earlier, that there's a lot going on behind the scenes there in terms of core values, principles, standards, that kind of thing. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, your early interactions with Coach Tar and now looking back, what you think, wow. I'm so glad I learned that from her. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, my family is culture folks. Like my own biological family, we're very much family oriented. And then to be a part of a college program for the next step in my softball career that truly felt like another family, it's the most coolest thing you could ever experience in your life. Like, Culture matters, right? Culture wins. And then if you have, if you're developing softball players by way of that culture, now you're winning in like two different areas. You're winning as humans, now you're winning as softball players. So I think being around that was super, super inspiring to me. And I like, it just fit my personality to a T. Um, Because we had core values to buy into every single day. We knew what the standards were and the expectations were every single day. Um, even just the smallest things like language, like how you speak to somebody, how you treat somebody, the things that you say, like how your language matters and affects people, all the way on the softball field. Like we have a way of doing things, a way of fielding the ball, a way of throwing the ball, a way of hitting the ball. So there was a very – there's so much buy-in in so many areas 
that like what I learned there has just, it's just taken me to all other areas of my life and what I believe in so much and how you can maximize and get the best out of your people. Um, but yeah, she's, she's truly the best developer I've ever been around in my entire life. And because of that, it's why I care so much about fundamentals of the game, but I also care about like culture and character and how much that matters in the decisions that we make in our lives. I mentioned uh, off air that I went to Beaverton High School and mm-hmm. Ashley Charters uh, is from Beaverton. Yes. Um, that You guys had an unfair infield there. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, she, was, she was quite a baller second baseman. Yeah, I would have loved watching just you guys practice. You must have had so, so much fun throwing the ball around. You it know. was fun, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, a very good hitter, very good hitter. What do you remember playing against ASU? As I mentioned, I was the sports psych guy at that time. Um, they won it in 2008. Uh, tell us about your battles with the Devils. The one thing I remember about ASU is we, it was always definitely an intense rivalry. Felt like it was always very scrappy in a very professional, respectful way. And ASU's pitching was always really hard. Like, one gal that sticks out to me from ASU is Katie Burkhart. And yeah. she was she was tough. tough. She had a cannon. Sorry? She had a cannon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had a cannon, and she could also, like, spin the ball like nobody I've ever seen at that time in my softball career. Um, she was just extremely effective. Um, so playing against her, I felt like, made, made me better. Right? She was just really, really good. I yeah. feel like ASU could always hit, always hit. Yeah, they were they were pretty stacked during those years that you played. And, uh, yes. But, yeah, iron sharpens iron in terms of, you know, playing against, you know, for UW, playing against, you know, UCLA and Stanford and ASU mm-hmm. and, and especially U of A as well. I mean, that was pretty crazy when you have the, you know, Mike Candrea with, uh, with sure. U of A. And so yeah. a lot of fun trips, too, to the desert that you took uh, oh, to yeah. – uh, to Tempe I, and to Tucson. Yeah. I love the Pac-12 conference, I think, is just world-class. And I, I'm so proud of being a part of that. I mean, they call it the Conference of Champions, you know. So there's just so many unreal athletes and coaches that are still there, but it have certainly come out of there. No, no, no. I just I think it's just a really good quality conference. Yeah, is there a particular moment in that final series where um, I think it was was it Florida you were going toe to toe with that crystallized the whole season for you? <laughs> the one actually was bases were loaded, and I remember I hit a ground ball. I don't know where I hit, I forget where I hit the ball, but all I remember is. The Florida catcher tried to throw the ball to second base, and the center fielder was way too close backing up the second baseman, or the shortstop. And the catcher, her throw went all the way to center field, and we ended up scoring all the bases loaded because of that errant throw. Um, And I just remember, like, I was rounding second base, and I, I was almost, like, 
jumping on Kimmy Pullman's back. I was like that close to her, but it was just a, to me, that was an extremely pivotal moment for the series. Cause I feel like from that moment on, we had momentum. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Cause as a good commentator always say in any sport, there's going to be runs and counter runs. Right. And so, you know, a team might f- seem like they're coming out sluggish, but eventually they're going to hit the gas at some point. And then it's really how long you can ride, as you often say, Jim, how can you ride your own run for longer? And then can you halt or stop the other team run sooner? So it sounds like that was uh, kind of a, a, a turning point in the in the game and the series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a heavyweight battle there with Florida, you know, and, and they've gone on to become even bigger and better than they were. You know, that's when, you know, we talked about like the just nationally, uh, the, the, the spread of excellence, you know, in softball is, is incredible. And it's probably no offense to any other sport, but it's probably the hardest sport in college because there's so many players that play in high school, you know, mm-hmm. and softball is so competitive in high school, uh, just numbers wise that, you know, there's just, when you get to college, I mean, every team is solid. And then you have the heavyweights, you know, the PAC 12 and some of the sec and, mm-hmm. you know, and whatnot. But, um, what was your mind? And, and you're too uh, modest to tell us, but you batted cleanup always or mostly always? Uh, for you, Dad? Yeah. I was like, yeah, like two two and three spots typically. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was your mindset on defense? Um, I remember one of the first softball players I ever worked with, this was years ago. I, uh, she said, yeah, I'm really struggling on defense. And I said, well, what's your self-talk like? And she said, what do you mean? Like, what am I saying to myself when I'm on defense? And I said, yeah. And she said, don't hit it to me. Don't hit it to me. <laughs> and I said, you know, we might need to work on that a little yeah. bit. But, you know, <laughs> I, I want to make a play or hit yeah. it to me or, you know, um, but, uh, you know, just read and react and all that good stuff. But uh, what was, you know, you don't have a lot of time to think on defense, obviously, but shortstop, I mean, that's a beautiful, awesome position. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, usually the best player, the best athletes play shortstop, uh, at least when I was a kid growing up. So mm-hmm. tell us, um, tell us your mindset on defense. Gosh, for me, like defense, I would say, like, that was my jam. Like, that was my thing. And I would say if somebody were to think of me, like, especially, you know, the Washington days and stuff like that, they, they go to they go to Jen Selling defense. Um, I just always loved it. Like, I just, my dad, just thinking about my dad again, my dad was, he was such a good defensive catcher. He had such a good arm, his instincts, his, and he loved catching. And for me, I did start as a catcher, went over third base, and I played shortstop from 11 on. And I just loved making the cool plays. So, and I didn't even really, back then, I don't even recall having, like, mantras or, like, cue words that you'd say on defense. Mm-hmm. I just was like, I just wanted the ball all the time. And I wanted to, like, look cool, make fun plays, and do stuff off balance, and just look really athletic and have a good time doing it. <laughs> um, so, for me, I just always wanted the ball. You know, I think if, if ever you're scared of the ball on defense, then you're kind of already setting yourself up for failure. So to your point about the self-talk piece, it's you, you got to want the ball to come to you to make plays. We can't be scared of the ball. So, and I always loved the ball to be hit to me. And I also loved the ball to be hit to me under pressure. Because I was that kind of person where 
I'd almost like shuffle a little bit and then throw at the last second to make him feel like they had hope, but they really had no hope because I did have a good arm. But again, it kind of goes back to my dad. Um, but I just had fun. I love defense. And then believe it or not, like things started to shift. Like now I love defense. Don't get me wrong. That's my DNA. But now all of my development and time and energy goes into offensive and hitting development, swing development. Mm. So um, it's been like an interesting transition. That's right, because, yeah, defense, I remember you guys, um, yeah, it was almost like, you know, for a hitter playing against you guys at UW, it was almost like it was just one big glove, you know, like in the outfield, <laughs> like in the infield and in the outfield. It's like there's no green, you know, places to hit the ball. Uh, you guys had so much range, too, and you had so much range as a, as a shortstop. That's so important. I don't think people realize it. Like when you actually go stand on the field, like the infield, and then you kind of start walking back a little bit, it's huge. And so – you cover a lot of ground. And so that's fun to watch. Um, and, and like you said, it's fun to play, but that's kind of neat that you've kind of are, have a different hat on now focusing on, on helping uh, hitters more. So. Mm-hmm. And I think if people watch Washington play, even still to this day, people know that defense matters to Washington's culture. Um, if you came to watch us practice, if you came to, came to watch us kind of go about our business, um, it's definitely very obvious that defensive fundamentals um, matter to us. You've got to be able to catch and throw and get to balls to win games. You can't just hit. So yeah, I, I like too when you said about, you know, not being afraid of the ball. It, you know, what a great softball and baseball maxim that if you're afraid of the ball, it's going to find you. Mm-hmm. And a thousand percent been playing the game for 29 years. Truly, I wholeheartedly believe that. If you're, if we're saying some some things mentally that aren't in our best interests, the ball truly will find you. Just like it's the game knows. The softball gods, <laughs> they're they're always kind of keeping you on your toes. For sure. Uh, but what's amazing though is you absolutely crushed it and uh, in college, but. You know, there's a lot of adversity. There's a lot of struggle that people don't realize, you know, you know, the old adage, you know, especially in baseball where, you know, you're out, you know, if you could get three hits out of 10, you know, you're in the Hall of Fame or an All-Star and that kind of stuff. But um, how did you handle, you know, adversity, expectations, um, you know, mini slumps, those kind of things? Um, you, you seem like such a grinder that you would just, you know, keep your head down and keep working hard and, you know, and, and be optimistic and confident that it was going to turn around. Uh, but I'm sure a lot of teammates helped and then you helped them. But yeah, tell us about kind of the, the you know, uh, building strength in the struggle. Mm-hmm. I think um, just as much as we practice our physical skills, especially in our sport, because we fail so much and we're humbled so much, we need to also practice our mental performance skill set. So the sooner that somebody can develop that skill set, I think the the quicker they're going to be able to handle and manage adversity. Not saying that they're going to be perfect at it, but at the end of the day, we need to develop skills that we can go to when we're not mentally going well and understanding the importance of developing those skills just as much as you develop your physical skills. Um, and then the second thing I would say is I do think my mother was very, very helpful in a sense of, I don't want to get too deep here, but just, just her family background 
coming from, you know, a lot of adversity, a lot of dysfunction, um, just always, you know, having to like battle obstacles in her life. I think she helped my brother and I figure that out. Like adversity is your friend. If you fail, it's okay. We have to learn from it and move forward. It's not, it doesn't define you. Right. So I think Kobe Bryant said this, if you don't learn from failure, that's when it's a failure. I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't quote that correctly, but it's only a failure if you don't learn from it. Yeah. And if you you can reshape what failure is in our brain, I think that alone is just so helpful, especially when you're a high performer. Well, that's such a gem right there to hear from you because, you know, anyone looking at your resume would think, oh, she's always been successful. She never failed. And, you know, you definitely didn't feel that way. Um, And, you you know, the best kind of fail the most because they keep going, you know, and they keep working hard. And uh, our mutual sports psychology, uh, you know, we miss them dearly, but Ken Revisa would always say uh, adversity is a fertilizer. (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of what you grow out of it. And, you know, it does make you stronger if you use it properly. Yeah, for sure. I wholeheartedly agree. And to me, like life and especially being a high performer in sport, it's such a process. And if we are constantly defined by each moment in our process, we just don't last. Right? It's just such a journey. Like just getting to that level is any level, any step in your life or in your sporting career, it's, it's a journey, right? And I think if we own all that comes with the journey versus just we only can be successful, we only can win and we can only execute and we can't fail, it just, things are tougher that way. Well, you bring up a good point that um, he mentioned, you know, playing for 29 years now and at the international level, you said that your career started, you know, a couple of short years before that first Olympic experience, but then, you know, that was not your only Olympic experience. So what is it that has sustained you at a high level for so long? What is it that continues to bring you joy about the game? And how have you you just managed to to improve and just find different areas to improve on year after year, season after season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I've always loved softball. But I think I've always loved softball because of the challenges that it constantly brings you. Because you never, ever, ever, ever have it figured out. Ever. Like you could be executing something, a rep, or you, you could get a hit, then the next step bat, you don't. Or in practice, you don't execute a rep. So it's like, to me, it was constantly like yearning to like master it, but knowing I would never master it, but you're constantly being challenged to master it. Um, and then I think just for me, I wasn't ready to leave the game yet after 2017, I really started, I was at a crossroads. I was like, okay, Jen, do you really want to continue your, your career in softball? Right. I was drafted in 2011, um, did my thing, went to grad school at UW. So starting to kind of dabble in college coaching Masters was finished in 2017, and then I was like, okay, Jim, what do you want to do, right? And that's when the Olympics were reinstated in 2016. So then I just was like, well, I could do this differently than I've ever known to do it because of what I learned in 2008, but I, and I'm not ready to leave playing yet. 
So I just stuck with the challenge of the sport and what it brings. And then when the Olympics were reinstated, I was like, dang, you have a really cool opportunity here to do something different than you did in 2008 because you're going to be 34 years old and not 21 years old. Um, so that was super addicting feeling. And also, too, my role changed, right? My, I became a hitter, not so much a defender. Um, and then I met a hitting mentor in 2016 by the name of Lincoln Martin while I was at grad school. And from 2016, when the Olympics were reinstated, literally to now, and it's going to be onward, I've just obsessed myself with hitting development because hitting has evolved so much in our sport. And it's so much of what we do. And I wasn't necessarily known as a hitter. I was known as a defender. So then I started getting obsessed with, like, researching hitting and what it takes to be a really good hitter fundamentally and physically and also mentally too. But hitting is really hard. <laughs> and I like to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, was, well, go ahead, Jim. Well, I mean, we have to bring up uh, your British Columbia buddy, uh, Danielle. Mm -hmm. um, Laurie. Um, how do I pronounce her name? Her last Laurie. Name? She was just, I mean, good Lord, uh, strikeout queen, right? I mean, what an amazing, I mean, it must have really freed her up to have you guys on defense, but then also must have felt fed off of her on, you know, with her pitching. Um, tell us about her a little bit, her mindset. And, and um, it's interesting how you both grew up in British Columbia, then you both played for UW and then, you know, rock and roll from there in terms of, you know, Olympic team and then pro, pro, uh, pro softball. Uh, yeah. which is really impressive. Uh, she's a stud. She is. I mean, we've had so much history together, to your point, about um, growing up in the same area. We played against each other. Oh, you did, growing up. Yeah. And then um, our first team together, we were in 2005 for Team British Columbia. Then I went off to Oregon. She went off to UW. Then her national team career started in 2005. Mine started in 06. Um, then we, yeah, won a national championship. 2008 Olympics, um, played against each other in the pro league, and then she came out of retirement. So, so much history together um, as teammates, and truly, and I'm not saying this because she's one of my best friends to this day, she's 1,000% the most, um, the best competitor I've ever played behind in my entire life. Like, you want Danielle Laurie on the mound for your team because she will do anything to help you win. To the point, if she needed to hit somebody because somebody slid, slid into me in shortstop with their cleats up, she'd probably do it. She'd hit someone's grandmother probably if she needed or to. Or she, she would do it. I know she would. And she'd <laughs> feel comfortable with me saying this on air too. Like that's just – but that's just knowing that you have that on your team and you have that person in your corner that is going to do whatever, not only to protect you but also to win is a really, really comforting feeling. Yeah, she's she's was like Michael Jordan, you know, just so intimidating. Like Michael Jordan, uh, Phil and I are, you know, we we uh, geek out over, you know, the Bulls and Jordan and, and yeah. that area. And she reminds me, I mean, your whole team that year um, uh, was just so fun to watch. But um, yeah, she's just had a really nice long career, and uh, I love it—the confidence, the concentration, the competitiveness. Um, and she just oozes, you know, like, I'm going to strike you out. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. 
And the mentality is so contagious, right? When you know that that mentality is on the mound, especially in the most pressure-filled games of your entire life, like that, that confidence is just so contagious to everybody around you. Yeah. We, we don't want to give too many props to pitchers because you're a position player, but who, who, who was honestly and not putting anyone else, you know, throwing anyone else under the bus because, you know, anyone in college or, you know, pro or Olympics is, is a good pitch, you know, a great pitcher. But is there one pitcher that really was like, man, you know, I, that, that was a, you know, a tough, like a street fight for you. That was like maybe the toughest pitcher that you faced uh, during your career. You faced some, you know, the best ever, a lot of the best ever. Um, collegiately or internationally? Well, I'd love to hear both uh, because, you know, I'm thinking of some Americans too. And then, you know, and, and, and collegiately um, uh, well, just the whole Olympic experience too, but, you know, and then in the pros. Hmm. Collegiately, there was, there was some good ones. You did mention Katie Burkhart. Yeah, she was, she was, uh, she was tough to beat, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of like we'd always say, you know, when she competes, she's tough to beat. <laughs> so uh, when she spun it, like she just kept you so off balance. She was just one of those that was like really frustrating to face because she she could spot the ball and she could spin the ball. And between those two combinations, it just as a hitter, it's frustrating because you're constantly off balance. Another one that I love facing because she's so competitive and she was a baller in her day was Taryn Mowat. She is now the assistant coach at Arizona. Um, I did love, I liked facing her. She was hard. She had a really good screwball, really, really good change up. Um, and then in the pro league, gosh, there were so many. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to think like, did you ever face Cat? Yeah, Cat, Cat and Monica are the two toughest pitchers I've ever faced in my life. Yeah, I was going to say Monica too. I mean, wow. Yeah, wow. and for two very different reasons, right? Like Cat throws slower, like lower velocity, like low sixties, but her movement is just out of this world. Monica is in the seventies, low seventies. And she, she just throws gas. So it's just like on you so fast. But, and two, I mean, they're just such, they're quality, true professionals. Like they're, they're masters of their craft. And I just have so much respect for people that are really good at what they do and how they go about their business and their preparation is just world-class. Speaking of preparation, going into that second Olympic cycle so many years after, and obviously bringing more life experiences, um, bringing more of the mental game to bear, um, probably having developed as, as a leader and a great teammate. How did you feel that preparation outside of not just, you know, <laughs> having a different scenario in terms of now you're not a college athlete anymore, so you can, you know, embed a little bit more of the team. But just give us a little bit of a compare and contrast in the latter stages of that cycle and then take us into that that second Olympics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, being 21, right, in 2008, I was just really trying to follow the path, right? Follow people, learn from people, um, ask questions, just just watch, right? Watch how the leaders and the veterans um, went about their business. And I think from watching them and learning their decisions and how they chose to go about their preparation, I 
took that into this, this last run. So while doing the right thing and being a person of good character, I feel like is something that I've always tried to do my best to take pride in. Um, I also was really trying to be mindful of like leading by example as a veteran to show the newcomers or the newcomers of an Olympic experience specifically what we learned in 2008 as 21-year-olds, meaning myself, Kaylee Rafter, Danielle Laurie, um, Lauren Bay, who, who was here as well, but she's, she's a three-time Olympian. Um, so just what the four of us learned together 13 years ago and bringing that to the people now who are going to have their very first experience. Um, and to me, it was doing everything I possibly could in my daily to have zero distractions. Like nothing was going to take me away from being as prepared as possible come the Olympic Games. Uh, and that means, you know, job opportunities and, you know, opportunities to make more money and do those types of things. Like I was choosing not to do those things because training was number one. And that's going to look differently for everybody, right? I'm not saying everybody has to do what I did or everybody has to do what Danielle did or Kaylee did. But I think when people start to make decisions that are in the best interest of the team winning, that then becomes contagious. Um, so slowly but surely, you know, within like the last two, three years, we had, I think almost all of our team was training full time. So everyone chose to like, you know, put job opportunities and things aside to get themselves in a, a 24-7 training environment. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And, and was part of the motivator there coming so close in that first Olympic cycle mm -hmm. and then thinking, all right, maybe there's a little unfinished business with the podium we need to take care of here collectively? For sure. I mean, a thousand percent. Like we, like you said, we came forth, right? And with all that we, each of us put in, right? Like Danielle Laurie is a mom. Lauren Bay is a mom. Like with all the sacrifices we each made individually to put Canada in the best position to win their first ever medal, we're like, we're, there's no option not to win a medal at this point. <laughs> you know, like we're in it to win it, you know? So, and I, I will say when we were there, it felt like that. It felt like we weren't going to leave the Olympics without a medal. We were going to win a medal. We just didn't know what, what color it was going to be. And I swear in my heart of hearts, being there felt like that. Even in the Mexico game, when it was like, it was 2-1, they had a runner at second base, runner at third base, whatever it was. And it was just kind of like those, like, dang, if they score right now, eh. But it still felt like, no, we're not, we're not losing. Like, again, the game will take care of you if you take care of the game. And to me, I felt like our team took care of our preparation. Therefore, the softball gods were going to take care of us. <laughs> 2008, though, that was amazing competition because I remember, yeah, Japan was incredible. U.S. was incredible. Australia was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and you guys were right there competing. Um, that, that was pretty incredible. And then what you just said was amazing, too. And uh, what I liked about, you know, kind of getting back to University of Washington real quick, um, you were low. It, it seemed like everyone accepted their roles and tried to be a star in their role. Uh, with UW, uh, and you had players that, uh, like Jenna Clifton, that 
I mean, she was all, academic All-American, honorable mention, or All-Pac-12, honorable mention, and then pitch, and then she would, you know, like pinch run. And uh, uh, it's just really interesting because, you know, what a stud player from Arizona, but what a stud player that, um, you know, try to be a star in her role. And that, you know, those, you know, the, no role, role is too small enough for a championship team, you know, if you want to you want to win it all. And so I was impressed by how, how cohesive you guys were uh, and, and how everyone had kind of the, you know, the big picture in mind about, you know, we're going to do something special this year. Did it feel that way for you guys? Yes. And I mean, as you both know, with the, the books that you guys write together and the stuff that you do in your daily lives and your own specialties, a champion within when you're in a championship culture everyone knows exactly what their specialty is and that specialty and that role is well communicated by the leader and you know if we think about coach tar in that year everybody knew what their role was and everybody maybe they didn't love it at the beginning but mm-hmm. eventually they bought into what their role was and it's the same thing you know when our with our most recent bronze medal finish with the national team like each role was very well communicated to us. So there was no gray area. We know what was expected of us. And we knew exactly what we needed to do for the team because that was how we were going to win. Take care of your role, own your role. That'll help the team win. Yeah, and everyone benefits. It's the rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, Everyone wants to be part of something special, you know? And so that was impressive. And then with the, the recent Olympic team that, uh, you know, just even making it to the Olympics is like making it to the moon, you know, and, but then getting on the podium is like making it to Mars. You know, what do you still pinch, do you still pinch yourself, you know, two time Olympian and then, you know, podium finish. And like, I do, sometimes you wake up like, am I, was that a dream or is that? No, I don't know. Like sometimes I feel like I'm like, I don't know. Like people will say like how you're saying right now. I'm just like, I just kind of did my thing. <laughs> well, that's why, yeah, that's why you were able to do it because you didn't make it bigger than life. But then, you know, in terms of kind of perspective, though, looking in on it, it's such a special, um, you know, needle in a haystack kind of thing to to make it there and then and then uh, uh, do damage, you know, and and and, and get on me, the podium. I think for me, just like thinking about like the experiences that I've been so fortunate to have within sport. I'm so grateful because now, especially like in this next chapter of my life, like I just feel like there's so much that I can take from my experiences, not being like a two-time Olympian, whatever, All-American, national champion, like that doesn't even pop in my brain. I think what pops in my brain is like the relationships, the experiences, the lessons that I feel so grateful now to be able to take into this next chapter of my life and what I'll be doing um, now, essentially in my professional life. Um, and to me, that's more powerful than like holding a bronze medal, if that makes sense. Like what's powerful to me is the relationships and the experience that I will take forever versus like a, an actual piece of hardware, if that makes sense. You know, the hardware is cool. Don't get me wrong. But like when I look at the medal, I'm like, like I think about the grind of all of it and the people that were involved, you know, and the stuff that I learned now that I can take with me forever. So. Well said. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the, the mental game and your command of it. Um, 
your, your kind of passion for developing that side of your performance going into that second Olympic cycle versus this, you know, um, not quite a rookie, but second year on the national team in, in that first Olympic cycle and just the difference in, in, in your mindset uh, approach between the two games. I, my mindset in this last run was, Jennifer, you're going to do everything in your power, everything that you possibly can to leave no stone left unturned once you retire on July 29th. So every single day that I woke up in the morning, I tried my best to evaluate whether or not I was doing exactly that. So is what I'm doing today going to help us win? Is what I'm doing today going to help me personally also feel at peace when I lay my head on my pillow at night at the very end of that Olympic Games? Are you going to feel peaceful retiring? And to me, it was all in my preparation. If I didn't take care of my preparation and controlling all the things that I could control, I wouldn't be able to sit here right now and genuinely say, like, I'm at peace with my playing career and I'm ready to move on to the next steps of my life. That was my biggest fear, truly. Like, I didn't want to leave the game that I've, like, my heart and soul has been in as a player for 29 years, thinking I should have done something differently, could have done something differently, the whole shoulda, coulda, woulda. I didn't want that to sit with me for the rest of my life. So that truly, as far as my day-to-day, I was going about my business and then in hopes of potentially that kind of being contagious towards the girls who were in going into their first experience, like helping them, you know, it's not going to look how I'm doing it personally. That's not what I'm saying. It's just it's going to look a little bit differently, but this is kind of how it can look, right? Like, you get up in the morning, you have your routines, right? You you get the softball in, you get the workouts in, you recover well, you sleep well, like just the detailed things that it takes to be a pro. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that part of that is, you know, actually putting work into the mental game, right? Not just paying it lip service. When did that start to take hold for you? And what were some of those practices, whether it was visualization, it was self-talk, it was reflection slash self-awareness some of those skills that you started to to put into place years before you even knew that the the second olympic cycle would be a possibility yeah and i would say phil i i would say my i should have spent more time into mental performance routines early on than i did I would say I really started getting into the visualization. I really started buying into the mindfulness piece, like in the last couple of years of this last Olympic run. And I would say some of the girls who had never experienced Olymp- an Olympics before were a lot better at um, their mental performance routines, specifically visualization and mindfulness, stuff like that, than I was. It was a really hard thing for me to do because I always kind of just did. Um, but then, you know, we started doing some serious imagery, um, when COVID hit, we went through the whole entire Olympic games. It was the seven game schedule. And each week we played a team and we had to, you know, write down all of our mental performance routines in this imagery, imagery sheet, sheet that Wade Gilbert sent us. So since that, 
I would say I really started getting into the visualization. So that's pretty late, mm-hmm. right? So I just was getting to a point in my career. I just felt like, hey, you're, you're starting to get in your own way a little bit. Now we got to kind of, what's something more that you can put more time into to feel like your brain's a little bit more clear than what it's feeling right now in the box? Um, but I would say that imagery exercise for those seven weeks during COVID really like hit home to me. Well, if you picked up sports psychology early in your career, you might've been too good to play soccer. (laughs) (laughs) You bat like 900 or something. (laughs) The thing is, is I was always around it, right? Being around Revisa, I was always around it. I would say I was just, wasn't the best at executing it. I think you were probably doing a lot of it spontaneously, like, you know, visualizing what you wanted to have happen, you know, like, it sounds like you had some really solid self-talk, obviously, um, you know, you, and goal good setting. body language, yeah, all that good stuff. Um, did you have any, just kind of a fun question real quick, did you have any superstitions? Uh, I used to, you know, kind of be against those, and now I, uh, you know, my thing is, you know, kind of in a fun way that, everything is a good sign, you know, cause I think a lot of times athletes wake up and it's like, is it going to be a good day or a bad day? You know, and, and why not use it everything as a sign that it's going to be a good game or, you know, a great game. And so I kind of have fun with that. Um, uh, you know, it, Oh, it's raining. That's a good sign that we're going to play well today. Or it's, you know, <laughs> sunny. That's a really good sign that we're going to play well. So you can't lose that way. But did you have any favorite things that you like to eat before you played or, or any little kind of favorite routines? You know, they're not, maybe some of those weren't necessarily superstitious, but what was your pregame routine like? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally depending on where we were, what we had access to, that kind of stuff. But I, I would say, generally speaking, I, I am very much, I love to move and sweat in the morning. Like, I need to move my body. I got to walk, run, jog, bike, just kind of get my brain dialed for probably like a good hour. I love that. Um kind of go relax before I love to shower like an hour before we leave for the field. Um, I'm very much a video watcher. I love to watch my swing. Um, I love to watch the opponent. Um, so I don't know if that's the most fun stuff, but again, that does the, again, kind of going back to the earlier part of the conversation, like I guess that's an area for me that I wasn't, I wasn't like the fun, happy-go-lucky. Like if somebody needed that, somebody needs to play hacky sack and don't go do the thing, like go play hacky sack. But if I'm around a hacky sacker, that's distracting to me. Um, so again, knowing your personnel, right? But for me, this sounds, sounds dumb, but like I love to put my left shoe on, left sock on first before my right sock, my right shoe. Like just those little batting gloves, left hand first, right hand next. Um, don't like to stop on step on chalk lines um just like little stuff like that yeah i just think that's fun you know it's just everyone you know it just shows everyone has a little bit different personality or you know character and so uh thanks for sharing that that's cool yeah no worries uh, one of the quotes I, I saw, maybe it was on the national team website, if I recall correctly, that that you said you've kind of adhered to is without struggle, there is no progress. Could you dive into that a little bit for us? Yeah, I actually have that tattooed on my... <laughs> oh, there you go. So you really dived into it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know, that's life. 
you know, life is not always rainbows and butterflies. And, you know, when I think of those words, I, I truly do think of my mom and how, she, you know, she and my dad, of course, my parents, high school sweethearts, been married for 30, 40 years now. But anyways, mom, you know, she, she thrives on adversity. She thrives through, she's been through a lot of trauma. So I think just she's helped my brother and I understand that if you're different, if you go through something bad, if this happens, it's, it's okay. And life will go on. Everything's going to be okay. We just need to lean into the struggle, lean into the university and figure it out versus running from it. You know, and if you don't struggle, I don't think there's progress because life is not perfect. And if we want things to be perfect all the time, what are we going to be like when, you know, poop hits the fan? How are we going to respond? You know, so to me, it's like if, if you treat it more so as your friend and something that helps you versus hinders you, then I think we just become stronger, more resilient humans. You could swear on here if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that Ken Revisa, you know, uh, when he talked about, uh, you know, when the stuff hits the fan, just clean up the fan. But that's the adversity training that you need to learn. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. When did you get that tattoo? I love that. I got it in when I was with the Youthful Safe Pride. We're in Chicago first series, and I got it in Chicago. Yeah, that's so cool. I love asking people about their tattoos because you know it tells them you know it tells you a lot about you know just who they are and what's important to them. And so yeah. um, that's cool, Phil, that you picked up on that. And then you're like, yeah, I got a tattoo of it because that I, is such a great quote. It's actually right here, like on my collarbone. It needs to be redone and touched up. But yeah, it's uh, it's a good one. I like it. I love that one. Did, did you also get ink for how you do anything is how you do everything? <laughs> how much ink do you have? No, but I should because I feel like if anybody in our team, when they do stuff or they, they say stuff, well, well, my former teammates now, now I guess call them my athletes, but when mm-hmm. they say those say that quote, they're, I was like, J-Cell was here. That makes me think of J-Cell, but. I actually, I got that from Washington. I got it from Coach Shar. How you do how you do anything is how you do everything. And to me, if you're walking by a piece of trash on the sidewalk and you walk past the trash, yeah. I feel like that's that's a sign of something. Um, to me, if you walk by a piece of trash and you pick it up, it's a sign of something. So, um, I'm all about creating elite level habits, and. Um, Doing right, be, again, being a person of good character, um, being strong in your values, whatever those are, um, and that's going to be different for everybody. But I think at the end of the day, it's just about being a good person, um, being a good teammate, being a good family member. So, yeah, in, in our leadership book uh, that Phil and I wrote, um, we had I love a. That book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we have a. Uh, um, a quote that, yeah, being, you know, being a, being a good leader is being a good person. And so, uh, you know, it all starts and ends with being a good person. And what I also like about you, that's very clear in our, you know, in this conversation is, uh, I love when Clint Meyer would always tell back in the day, and this was even before growth mindset became a, you know, a buzzword for good reason, but, um, you'd always say, always a student, always a student, you know, there's always more to learn, you know, about the game and about yourself. And so, um, 
yeah, I love that you have that growth mindset. And now it just seems like you're so geeked out in such a cool way about the hitting <laughs> side of things and helping others to reach their goals. Mm-hmm. So what is next for you? Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now and, and what you're most excited about. Uh, because, you know, I'm thinking, man, you know, you know coaching, uh, maybe making a comeback, <laughs> just, but, uh, but coaching and, and just teaching and uh, there's so much more because it sounds like you love the game so much. You just want to keep giving back. to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my final presentation when I did my master's degree, the, the title of it was called impact. And I think whether it's through my playing career or now in this next journey of my life, I just, it's fun and really fulfilling for me to like feel like I'm making an impact on somebody in their life, whether it's life or softball. Um, and I, I do think a lot has, it happens through softball. Therefore, I think people's lives are impacted. Um, but I, I care about that. It matters to me. Every interaction matters to me. Every relationship matters to me. You matter to me, even if I've only met you for the first time. Like, you both matter to me right now because we're now sitting here on a podcast for 90 minutes. Like, I'm hopeful that we can continue a relationship in some way. To me, that's that's life. Um, and I'm a really relationship-driven person. So now in this next chapter, I just hope to make an impact in a different way, not through a playing career now, it's through being an assistant coach for Softball Canada. So I'm responsible for all of our swing development with Softball Canada. Um, now I'm hopeful to coach the Olympic th- Games in 2018 versus playing in the Olympic Games for 2018, or sorry, 2028. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, th- in addition to that, I'm looking to start my own Jen Selling consulting business. It's very player development driven. So um, the way I'm envisioning it is from like me to go into college programs of all levels, whether it be um, junior college, division three to NEI D1 um, and just help them create repeatable systems of development. Um, however, they would want that to look um, is kind of up to them. Cause I do think I could offer just different areas of expertise just based through my experiences and stuff. Um, and then also some elite level travel ball organizations to kind of impact the, the youth youth levels with player development and the staffs that they have in place. So those are the two big projects that I have next. Yeah. When do you, do you feel that there was a moment when you first got that coaching bug? Maybe it was really early in your playing days. Maybe it was from your dad or coach Tar or somebody else in between where you're like, huh, Interesting how they do it. Not sure I do it the same way, but wh- wh- where was the seed for that planted? Yeah, I would say once I learned that you could play softball in college, I wanted to coach in college. Um, and I think it's because the environments that I were in, I was in, I learned so much. Um, now, it's interesting because I no longer am interested in college coaching. Um, and I only say that because the lifestyle I don't think is suitable for what I'm looking for. Um, but I do feel like my coaching bucket is going to be fulfilled through Softball Canada now. And yes, through this player development stuff, but um, the lifestyle of a college coach is, I don't think is what I'm looking for anymore. 
Um, I would like a little bit more freedom and flexibility in my life, um, but also still be coaching, if that makes sense. The level that I would be at, which Dr. Jim, as you know, ASU, all the other places that you've been, when you're at that level as a college coach, your your soul is to that. And you're kind of, you're buying to that. And while I, I like culture and being a part of one thing and growing that one thing, I want to be able to also like flourish and impact so many different audiences and people. And you can't necessarily do that in the college game at that level. Yeah. It's, it's always good to know what your values are and you know, what's most important to you. Um, I remember when I started graduate school, I started actually in experimental psychology and I remember the main professors, you know, was asking me and, you know, uh, my cohorts, you know, Hey, do you guys love golf? We're like, yeah, we love golf. Do you love, you know, like, and he just, you know, rattled off all these things and we're like, yeah, we love reading. We love golf. We love all these things. And he's like, well, you got to give all those up right now. <laughs> and it's like, uh, and as a college coach, like you were saying, it's, uh, I was fortunate. I went to, then I went to grad school for sports psychology and counseling at Michigan state. And Nick Saban was a football coach. Tom is with the basketball coach. And those two guys are notorious for, Um, you know, it's family and coaching and every blue moon may be a round of golf, but Mm. there's no time for anything else. And uh, it's just so competitive, as you know. So I think it's great that you're like, you know, what do I value? What fits for me? Um, And what's going to get me, you know, like when my feet hit the floor, you know, when I wake up in the morning, you know, and, and get my day going, what's going to get me jazzed and excited about the day. And so, uh, you have a clear mind and a clear path moving forward uh, for this next chapter. So that must feel really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's different. It's feeling different right now just because I'm so used to structure. It's all I've ever known is like structure, routine, structure, routine. So now it's just kind of the transition into what the new structure and the new routine will look like. And I, it, I guess to be quite honest, I'm looking forward to taking ownership of my own schedule and my life really and my life kind of not being like I don't really like this word but like controlled by other people telling me what to do where I need to go when I need to be there and that that is a lot of the reason too why I'm really excited about the consulting business idea because I have ownership of my schedule and I have ownership of where I go when right um and in college coaching you just don't have that and I love the environment. Don't get me wrong. It fits my personality to a T. <laughs> but there is just a lot that comes with it um, that I, I just, I would like things to look a little bit differently. Yeah. It is interesting asking ask athletes about, you know, what they missed most about, you know, college or pro ball. It's, uh, you know, they're like, I hated it at the time, but I do miss the structure. So it's funny you use that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do like now being, you know, the one, you know, the president of their own life, you know. Yeah. But, um, and then they miss the camaraderie, which is great because you'll have even more of that, you know, as part of your own business and, and the consulting work. Um, so that's exciting, too. Um, they say that, you know, athletes, and I don't know who they are, but they say that athletes die twice, you know, when they retire from their sport and then, you know, from old age later on. But, um, but 
you know, I, I think that's kind of negative. I, I like that, you know, you always have what you had, um, you know, as, you know, it's can never be taken away from you. But now you can really reinvent yourself and, uh, and, and uh, add so many cool, new, awesome, fun stories and, and make an impact in a different way. So uh, very exciting, very exciting. Any quick thoughts on, re- on retirement? Uh, it's probably not the best word from, from the plane days, but, and then, um, and then, you know, we'll get close to wrapping up here. I think we're already past the seventh inning. I think we're in this extra, <laughs> inning, extra innings already. I could talk about this stuff for days. Um, any thoughts about retirement? No, I just, you know, kind of to our point, my point earlier about leaving no stone left unturned. I'm, I'm at peace. That, that's it. I um. You left nothing in your, you, you didn't leave any game in your uniform, which is uh, like John Wood in kind of the, um, the definition of success, that peace of mind and knowing that you did the best you could with what you had. So that's exactly. cool. Yeah. Like I said, my biggest fear was I didn't want to leave the game that has given me so much and that I've, I've given so much of my life to questioning anything. Um, so I just wanted to be able to put my head on my pillow at night after that last game being like, okay, Jen, think you're ready to leave your cleats on home plate. Like, are you going to be at peace seeing your cleats there knowing that you're never going to play the game compete as a player ever again? That was my thing every single day. Incredible. Well, this has been such a great learning experience for us and hopefully fun for you too. Can you tell everybody where they can learn more about your journey from here on out, connect with you, see what you're up to? Yes. Um, I have an Instagram. It's Jen, J-E-N-N underscore Salling, S-A-L-L-I-N-G. My Twitter is the same. I'm not super, super active on Twitter. Um, I am, but just not as much as Instagram. And then my consulting business website is not up yet so that's tbd on that got it well we can't wait to uh to run this back at some point if you're up for it for a part two and again just really appreciate you not just living a um a gold medal life on the field but off it as well so this has been really really fun and uh yeah just such a great experience well thank you guys for having me it's an honor to be on this with the both of you you guys have done some unreal things within the leadership community and I love, love following your guys' content. It, every time I read something that you guys have published together or individually, it hits home big time and it resonates with me. So thank you both for having me and all that you both do. Thanks, Jen. Uh, we threw you a couple of rise balls, but you hit them out of the park. So <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for being a great teammate with us today and, and sharing so much. I learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to run it back for, for game two uh, down the line a little bit let us know how we can support you too yeah and if if you guys need anything ever or want to connect again i'm definitely open to that thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please tell your friends about the champion conversations podcast and rate review and subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or your platform of choice you can also follow jim on twitter at gold medal mind Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.